Back in 2010, the movie Black Swan was released. You're in a good mood. Mm-hmm. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he certainly should. You're the most dedicated dancer in the company. You might remember it starred Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis, and it was a kind of twisted psychological thriller that at the time I thought was kind of brilliant. But as critically acclaimed as it was, not long after it was released, it made big headlines for a very different reason. Two men who worked on the movie Black Swan as unpaid interns have filed a lawsuit against... Eric Glatt was 40 years old, had an MBA and years of experience when, unable to find any paying jobs in film... His supervisor stated that, quote, if Mr. Glatt had not performed this work, another member of my staff would have been required to work longer hours to perform it, or we would Two unpaid interns had sued Fox Searchlight for back wages... They alleged that the studio violated minimum wage laws by using unpaid interns to do work usually done by paid employees, while also offering interns little to no educational value. Dozens of former interns signed on to the lawsuit. Meanwhile, 27-year-old Diana Wong was watching all of this unfold from her small New York apartment. She remembers reading the complaint from one of the former interns. He had done essential work for months, and he realized, like, that was really not okay, you know, that they just got someone dumb enough to do it for free. Something about it, though, felt strangely comforting. Diana herself had just finished a prestigious internship with the fashion magazine Harper's Bazaar. It was just the least glamorous job you can imagine. The internship came with no money, very little supervision, and a ton of responsibility. And Diana, like those Fox interns, felt like she had reached her breaking point. There was this whole group of people who are being exploited for the gain of these for-profit entities. And as she read about the allegations against Fox Searchlight, more and more of it sounded like what she'd experienced at the magazine. They really just needed interns more than, honestly, interns needed the magazine. But I think interns didn't realize how desperately their unpaid labor was needed just to keep these machines running. And so for me, I just was like, this has to stop. And in that moment, Diana was determined. She had to do something. And so I decided just to see, like, how legal is this? I'm Arima Khreis, and welcome to This is Uncomfortable, a show for Marketplace about life and how money messes with it. Diana didn't know it at the time, but she was about to be part of an uprising as unpaid interns across the country attempted to change the rules of work. This week, we look at that uprising of interns and the unintended consequences of their fight. Our senior producer, Megan Dietrich, reported this story, so I'm going to hand off the rest of the episode to her. Growing up in Northern Ohio in the 90s, Diana was obsessed with fashion, but especially one magazine, Harper's Bazaar. As a kid, she'd buy copies whenever she could and spend hours staring at the pages, memorizing the names on the masthead. In college, she wrote for a local city magazine, worked at a modeling agency, anything to get her closer to her dream of working at Harper's Bazaar. But her mom definitely did not approve. I'm Chinese, and so she's the archetype Asian mother. Mm. She wanted me to do something practical, like a doctor, lawyer, or, or a scientist. 
She just told me it was a silly dream and it's not a real job <laughs> and that it was just not realistic. And so she definitely was like going out of her way to discourage me. But Diana was determined. After college, she took a job at a call center and started saving up money. A year later, in May of 2011, with nothing but her savings, she made the move to New York and started applying for internships. It took a few months, but one afternoon, she opened her inbox, and that's when she saw the email of her dreams. She'd been offered an internship at Harper's Bazaar for the fall. I mean, I felt like Leonardo DiCaprio in the Titanic <laughs> when, he, when he was, like, screaming, I'm king of the world. That's how I felt. I really felt like all these years that I had persisted, like, never stopped, like, dreaming and thinking and planning for this um, had, was, was starting to pay off. This is the, it was just the beginning. On her first day, Diana rode the elevator up to the 25th floor of the Hearst Building in Manhattan. She walked down a long corridor of glass offices, passing the managing editor, the directors, the accessory director. The people whose names she memorized as a kid, they were her co-workers now. Like, these people to me were celebrities. And so I was just super starstruck. And I was also just really excited to actually do the job because I felt like, finally, I get to do what I've always dreamed of doing. I want to be, like, in this, these trenches. At the very end of the hallway was Diana's domain, the accessories closet. It was this huge room full of all the items the magazine used for photo shoots. The walls were lined with shelves of shoes, there were tubs of socks and hosiery, rows of clothing racks, and drawers filled with jewelry, all of it meticulously organized. Diana would be the boss of this closet because they'd offered her not just any old internship, but the position of head intern, there in the accessories department. The head intern role would be unpaid and longer hours than the other interns. She'd come in five days a week instead of two or three, but she didn't even hesitate when they raised the idea with her. I felt like it was this amazing opportunity because um, I would actually not get lost in the sea of interns. And I could actually really show off my ability and um, be seen as more than just an intern. The previous head intern welcomed her that first day and started explaining exactly what Diana would be doing at her dream job. Every morning, Diana would show up to an inbox full of emails. She was copied on pretty much every email, between the editors, designers, other magazines, PR people, like every email. X magazine needs this. We need this. What are you going to tell Chanel? Like, okay, Diana, step in, coordinate this pickup. We need that piece back here by three o'clock today. She'd spend her days filing expense reports for her bosses, checking accessories in and out of the closet, and then supervising the other interns' schedules. She was in charge of making sure they got upwards of 40 errands done every day. It was a grind, but Diana knew this is what she had to do to be part of the fashion world. I felt like it was just so cool to be a part of these images that were going to be coming out in, in a few months, you know? And I really was just happy to contribute any way I could. But very quickly, the internship just kind of took over her life. She pretty much stopped talking to friends, barely saw her boyfriend anymore. She just didn't have time. She'd get home at 10 or 11, cook something, crash, wake up, and back to her inbox. 
It was very Devil Wears Prada, except Anne Hathaway's character got paid. I never once stopped holding on to this dream that something great is about to happen for me. Like I'm on the cusp. I'm so close. I have to persevere. But then one morning, halfway into the internship, she arrived at work to find a request from Chanel. They needed the magazine to return a bag. But when she sent an intern to find it, no one could. I had them turn the fashion closet upside down and inside out looking for it. I mean, there was only one place to look, and it was the fashion closet. The bag was a press sample, one of the only ones currently in existence, and losing it reflected really badly on the magazine. Diana says her boss was livid. His face was red, and his eyes were, like, bugging out. And he was like, you know, what are you going to tell Chanel? Like, they're still emailing about, about that bag. He told me, like, you need to be the one to email them and tell them that it's lost. The accessories editor was saying to the unpaid intern, you need to be the one to tell Chanel. You've lost this bag. He was just like, you have as much responsibility as I do. And really, like, you have a closer tie to these samples than I do. It was jarring. Diana thought, how can an unpaid intern have just as much responsibility as him, a full-time editor? She sat down at her computer, nearly in tears, and started writing an email to the PR person at Chanel. I was just extremely flustered. I emailed them to tell them we had looked repeatedly for it and just couldn't find it, and, I, and that I was so sorry. She felt like she was being forced to take the fall for something that she didn't think was her fault, and she worried that it would jeopardize her reputation. And then, a couple weeks later, the Chanel bag finally resurfaced. The editor-in-chief, you know, the person who is literally in charge of everything, had it in her office. She had taken it home and, like, forgot about it. She came into the closet, took it home, and then it was found in her office. And, and that was, like, one of the times where I, I was just like, I can't do this. This is, I mean, I had such horrible anxiety, like, horrible, horrible anxiety. Despite Diana's late nights and best efforts, things would slip. She'd give an intern the wrong address or send the wrong item to a photo shoot. But Diana was at the end of her rope. She felt like she was doing the best she could. No one, no one was teaching me how to do this. I really had to just, like, figure it out. Like, nobody took any time out or, or I mean, they just didn't have that time. Their job was very demanding as it was. Diana knew the position would come with pressure and responsibility. She just didn't expect they'd leave an intern with so much responsibility, paired with so little training. Which, by the way, training is the whole point of an internship. The reason it is legal not to pay her was because it's supposed to be an educational experience. While she was home for the holidays, just a couple of weeks before the internship ended, her boss emailed her and told her that she didn't need to come back in to train the new head intern. Diana says that he later told her that she hadn't done a great job and he wouldn't be able to give her a recommendation. She knew her chances of getting a job without his recommendation were slim, and after months of living off of her savings, she was running out of money. I was just, like, really heartbroken. I, I felt very defeated by it. I had, like, every hope and dream writing on it, and I had put in so much. I was so emotionally invested. I had put all these monetary resources into it. 
And I really knew at that point that the ticket for me to get a job in fashion was really like the last person you worked for. She started desperately applying for jobs at other magazines or in fashion PR, but couldn't land anything new. She was out of options and now had to do the one thing that she never wanted to do. I actually had to um, beg my mom to to put some money in my bank account so that I could pay my my rent. I I really did, like begging her. And I already felt like really defeated by it. And so it was just really hard for me to have to ask for help from someone who like didn't already believe in what I was doing to begin with. And as she moved around New York, she started seeing the city with new eyes. Now, whenever she got on the subway, she noticed fashion interns all around her, loaded with shopping bags, running samples back and forth between magazines. And it just really started to rub me the wrong way that like, you know, most of these kids that are doing this, all they're doing is providing this free essential labor for these places. And they're, they're not going to go on to work in fashion. Like most people don't. You know, there are only so many positions to work in fashion for a fashion magazine. She wasn't wrong. A 2015 study found that paid interns were more likely to get job offers than unpaid interns. They also netted higher starting salaries once they took a job. For Diana, it also didn't help that magazines were downsizing. Remember, this was 2012, and the economy was just tiptoeing out of a recession. There was high unemployment and record student loan debt. The fashion industry as a whole was struggling. Diana's internship had been so hectic and overwhelming that she hadn't stopped to think about how unfair it had been. But now she started to connect some dots. She realized that at other magazines, there were actual positions for the work she was doing. The head intern position the thing sold to her as a huge opportunity, was really just the job of an accessories assistant, but unpaid. She sat in front of her computer and searched illegal internships. And that is when she found out about the Black Swan case. She looked up the lawyers on the case and wrote them a long email, sharing everything about her internship experience. She didn't have any expectations. It was just cathartic to write it all out. She figured it would sit in some unchecked inbox at the law firm. But then... Two days later. I got a call from the lawyer who was representing that intern for Fox Searchlight. It was his lawyer. And she called me. She was like, OK, I really want to speak with you. Can you come in? After the break, the uprising begins. It's easy to know you want to make a change in your life, but it is hard to actually do it. How to Be a Better Human from TED is a podcast for when self-help feels too daunting or maybe even unrealistic or just not for you. I'm Chris Duffy, the host of How to Be a Better Human, and trust me, I do not have it all figured out. But join me as I talk to experts about actually attainable ways we can try to improve our lives, whether it's facing fears, setting boundaries, cleaning your house without feeling like a failure, or all sorts of other topics. Find How to Be a Better Human wherever you get your podcasts.
Last Day is a show about the moments that change us. I just don't think I will ever get used to this. I'm Stephanie Whittles-Wax, and I have had one of these moments. We all have. So let's unpack the chaos that is our human existence together. I don't believe things happen for a reason. I don't believe the universe has a plan. Each week, I sit down with a new guest to explore happy, sad stories of transformation. It's leaning far, far into the pain. That's what it is. Listen to Last Day wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. It's hard to imagine it now, but internships as we know them didn't really exist before the 1980s. And even then, hardly anyone did them, especially as an undergraduate. Internships were really for the wealthy and people at prestigious universities. Only about 3% of students did internships. And then, in the 1990s, a recession hit. Companies started laying off and downsizing. And in the wake, interns stepped in to fill the void. Within a few years, a third of college grads had done internships. In 2012, there was an estimated 2 million internships in America, half of them unpaid. And it was that year that Diana found herself in the law offices of Outen and Golden. But this time, at least, she was finally doing something her mom approved of. Did you tell your mom that you were going to sue? Yeah. What did she think? My mom is like a really funny person. I, I think she, <laughs> she right away was like, good for you. Diana met with Rachel Bien, the lead lawyer representing the Black Swan interns in their case against Fox Searchlight. Rachel made the point to her that a lot of unpaid internships happen in just a handful of industries like entertainment, media, politics, nonprofits, you know, fields that are considered pretty glamorous and hard to get into. And because so few can break in, but so many people want to, it creates this attitude of, you should feel lucky to even be here. And sitting in her office, everything Rachel was saying really resonated with Diana. If you take the nature of the job out of the equation, it's just not right. Let's forget about the, the prestige and the glamour. And let's just say, you know, like, would you have someone like wash dishes for a restaurant for free? I mean, they are learning about how a restaurant works. I think that's how a lot of people actually felt there. They were like, you know, you get the chance to, like, make tea for the editor-in-chief of, like, Marie Claire. That is an amazing opportunity. That's Rachel, the lead counsel. From the perspective of a employment lawyer, to me, the facts on the ground looked very bad for Hearst. You just didn't get what the defense would be. Diana decided to go for it. She was going to bring a class action lawsuit against Hearst Magazines, which owns Harper's Bazaar. The details of how Diana's case proceeded are a little wonky, but here's what you need to know. Her case would be heard in tandem with the original Fox Searchlight case. Basically, a panel of three judges in a federal appeals court would hear arguments in both cases and then give one ruling that would apply to both. 
People all over the country were keeping an eye on the outcome because around the same time Diana filed her lawsuit, dozens of other class action lawsuits had popped up around the country, about 35 in total. Interns were suing not just movie companies and magazines, but animation studios and graphic design firms, recording studios, even a yearbook maker, for the right to be classified as an employee and paid for their labor. It felt like a sort of uprising, and Diana's case was a catalyst. This appeal would basically be the first time a federal court took this comprehensive of a look at unpaid internships since the 1940s. The outcome could determine the financial fate of millions of current and future interns. As Rachel prepared to argue Diana's case in January 2015, the pressure started to mount. Now, the value of work. Unpaid internships are more common than ever, but are they legal? Unpaid internships are anti-meritocratic, and ultimately they're bad business. Someone says to me, I don't mind working for free. What I hear is, I can afford to work for free. Would it be great if all unpaid internships paid really well? Sure. It would also be great if my dog made breakfast for me every morning, but I'm not going to file a lawsuit over it. Finally... Rachel walked into a federal courtroom in downtown Manhattan, ready to argue the now joint cases. The audience was so packed that they had to set up an overflow room so that people could watch the arguments on a video screen. At that point, Diana had moved back home to Ohio and was following the case from there. Rachel looked across the aisle at the person she'd be arguing against. It was this famous big-name lawyer, Neil Katyal. I think that I had actually seen Neil Katyal on an episode of a TV show where he he played himself. It was truly surreal. I, um, I was like, wow, this couldn't even become scarier. Rachel was a bundle of nerves as the three judges took their seats. The question they were set to argue seemed simple. How do you decide who is an unpaid intern and who is a paid employee? The lawyers for each side presented their own criteria for determining whether an intern should be paid. Rachel argued that the court should use an immediate beneficiary test to decide if someone should be paid. Basically, if an employer gets an immediate benefit from an intern, you have to pay the intern. The test was based on some guidance the Department of Labor released in 2010. Rachel told the judges that the kinds of duties Diana and all the other unpaid interns performed had once belonged to paid entry-level workers. Now, the companies were getting the exact same work, but from unpaid interns. The companies were clearly benefiting. Therefore, Rachel argued, the magazine should have paid Diana and the others. Rachel finished her arguments, and the famous lawyer on the other side stood up. He argued Rachel's test was too simple, that it shouldn't just be if the company gets any immediate benefit they have to pay. It should be a balancing test. Which party gets the most benefit? the intern or the company. If the value of what the intern learns is more than the value of the labor the company gets, then the company shouldn't have to pay. Rachel says the defendants really leaned on this idea, that these internships were more of an honor than a job. Their whole defense was that, essentially, being able to be in the presence of these renowned editors and designers is enough of an experience that these interns were were getting something out of it. And so, you know, regardless of the fact that they were working, um, these were sort of priceless opportunities. The judges seemed to be buying the argument. They started saying the fact that the interns are willing to do this for free 
that tells us they feel it's beneficial enough for them. And Rachel said, no, that's not what's happening here. These are not necessarily good experiences just because people are doing them and just because they're coveted. And, you know, I was trying to explain to them that the internships have become a necessary prerequisite to get a job. And so people feel that they have to take them, even if they're poor experiences. She said, and besides, we don't hold any other position to this standard. Because look, people almost always learn something at the job and still get paid. I've received you know, great mentoring and training over the years, but whether or not I'm paid isn't dependent on who's the primary beneficiary, you know, the company I work for or me. The arguments went way over time, closed out, and then they waited for the ruling. Six months later, in July of 2016, a decision was reached, and it was a blow for the interns. The court sided with the companies. They basically took Fox Searchlight's defense and turned it into a new legal standard. They said you should judge whether or not to pay interns based on which party benefits the most. And to figure that out, the court said, okay, here's seven criteria to help gauge if the company or the intern is benefiting more. If the company benefits more, then legally you have to consider the intern an employee. And some of the criteria makes a lot of sense, like the intern's work has to complement rather than displace paid employees, while also providing the intern with a significant educational benefit. But a lot of it feels to Rachel like it's automatically weighted in the company's favor. Like one of the criteria for an unpaid internship, it has to be unpaid. You can't promise to pay someone and then say, just joking, this is actually unpaid, which really wasn't happening anyways. And if you're in the business of just adding up the factors, well, the company's just going to get a freebie there. Another thing, you can't promise someone a job in exchange for an unpaid internship. Also an easy criteria for companies to meet. And written right into the guidelines, an internship can be unpaid if it's for academic credit. Beyond these criteria, the ruling also made it much harder to file lawsuits as class actions because these guidelines make it so interns are evaluated individually. Rachel says without class action, the companies game the odds. We can deal with one or two interns, you know, winning against us, but if tens or hundreds or thousands of interns are able to band together, it's, it's going to obviously create a lot more risk. What was supposed to be an intern uprising suddenly became a way for powerful companies to gain more power. But even though the law seems to favor companies now, the culture has ceded some points to interns. After all the press and pressure of Diana's lawsuit and dozens of others, a handful of companies decided to settle with their unpaid interns. NBC Universal paid former SNL interns a $6 million settlement. Condé Nast did the same. Viacom paid out $7 million. And five years after the case was brought, Fox Searchlight, the lawsuit that started it all, settled for $45,000 to the interns, with most of them getting about a $500 payment. And some of those companies, like NBC Universal, started voluntarily paying their interns. We reached out to Hearst, and they didn't get back to us. But according to their internship postings for the upcoming summer, at least some of their internships are now paid. 
the appeals ruling did one other thing. It sent Diana's case back to circuit court to be tried again with this new seven-point standard. Then, one evening in August of 2016, Diana got an email from her lawyer. She was at home in Columbus, Ohio, and was no longer working in fashion. The court had made their final judgment. She'd lost the case. I actually just had a baby when this outcome came out. Oh, wow. So I I don't remember a lot, actually. I was like in a fog the first six months of his life. I remember just reading it and being like, okay, that's that. Using the new test, the trial judge ruled in favor of Hearst, saying that the company met most of the criteria. The judge did concede, though, that Diana's intern position had displaced a paid job. I was really disappointed. I just felt like the judge had, like, no ability to really empathize with us. But I I just was disappointed because I felt like this could have had, like, a cultural shift, like a, an actual cultural shift. She knows her internship experience isn't an exceptional story. It happens all the time. But that was the very reason why she was so determined to bring her lawsuit in 2012. Because she wanted to speak up for everyone who couldn't afford to put their reputation on the line for those who were still trying to chase a dream that she didn't feel like was hers anymore. I just felt like um, I didn't love fashion that much to be a part of it. And I I still really love fashion. I really wanted to be a part of the industry, but I felt like magazines was not my future because I didn't agree with like the way they did things. I didn't love fashion enough to be somebody else's doormat. Diana says she hasn't opened a fashion magazine in 10 years. These days, she runs her own store that sells clean beauty products. But I keep thinking about how Diana spent years taking on a job she didn't want, building up her savings, just to get her foot in the door, just so she could see if this was a world she wanted to be a part of. Only certain people can afford an unpaid internship to begin with people who are able to take on a temporary financial loss for an imagined future gain. And when you consider which fields in particular lean on unpaid internships, the so-called glamour industries like film, publishing, politics, then it means you're handing all of that cultural clout, the power to shape what we read and watch, what policies we enact, well, you're handing that power to the already powerful. That was our senior producer, Megan Dietry. And that is all for this week's show. If you want to shoot us a note or share your thoughts, you can always email us at uncomfortable at marketplace.org. Also, this episode has got me thinking about my own internship experiences um, and some difficult choices I had to make. I wrote about it in our newsletter this week if you want to check that out. If you subscribe, each Friday you'll get a note from me in your inbox, plus some really solid recommendations from the team on things to read and watch and eat. You can subscribe at marketplace.org slash comfort. All right, this is Uncomfortable as me, Rima Khreis, Megan Dietry, Haley Hirschman, Peter Balanon-Rosen, and Camila Kerwin. Editing by Karen Duffin. Our intern is Mark Hay Green. Tony Wagner is our digital producer. Sound design and audio engineering by Drew Jostad. Sitar Nieves is the executive director of On Demand. Special thanks this week to David Yamada, the director of the New Workplace Institute at Suffolk University Law School. And our theme music is by Wonderly. All right, 
I'll catch y'all next week. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy.